the point is, in 30 years of researching this, I never met anybody who actually went out to accomplish capital I impossible. They accomplished small I impossible after small I impossible until small I impossible until capital I, this big that's never been done before thing, was just what was next. What does it take to do the impossible? What does it take to level up your game like never before? What does it take for individuals, for organizations, for even institutions to achieve paradigm shifting? Nothing is ever the same again, breakthroughs. Our mission is to decode the neurobiology of flow and cognitive peak performance. Access the minds of maverick scientists, groundbreaking innovators, and world-leading experts to understand what it takes to achieve ultimate human performance. So you can feel your best, perform your best, and accomplish your boldest goals. I'm your host, Rian Doris, and together with best-selling author Stephen Kotler, I present to you Flow Research Collective Radio. Hey there, Rian Doris here with Flow Research Collective Radio, and welcome to today's episode. Today's episode is kind of a unique one. This one is called the Podcasters Podcast. What we did today was gather about 14 podcasters from all over the world, from Australia to the US to different parts of Asia, and we did a big group Q&A with Stephen, which I facilitated, and it was surprisingly fun and came out surprisingly well. One of the benefits of having podcasters in a group conversation is that they're all pretty damn good at asking questions. So in this episode, we went deep on a number of different topics, specifically around Stephen's new book, The Art of Impossible. We covered new material that we have not yet covered around the difference between small I impossible and big I impossible, how to achieve the possible, if you've got kids, if you've got a family, if you're trying to balance that, and how to sustain motivation over the long haul if you find yourself ebbing and flowing a little bit with respect to your motivation and commitment. So you're going to love today's episode. You're in for a treat. And with that, let's dive right into today's episode. All the best. Hey folks, welcome to Flow Research Collective Radio. So today we're experimenting with a new format. This is the Podcasters Podcast. So we've got, let me see what it is, I think 13 or 14, 14. great podcasters from all over the world who are going to be doing a group interview of Stephen. So Stephen's going to get slaughtered with questions today, but it should be fun. And to kick us off, we've got Mr. Amrit. Sandhu, who is the founder activist of Inspired Evolution. He hosts one of Australia's fastest growing podcasts on spirituality and entrepreneurship, which is the Inspired Evolution podcast. And Amrit is internationally recognized and awarded for his work as a purpose coach and inspirational speaker. And Stephen and I had the, the nice opportunity to spend some time in person with Amrit actually back in 2018 in Estonia, funnily enough. So Amrit, we'd love to hear your question to kick us off, sir. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me, guys. Always a treat to connect with y'all. Let's start light and simple. Stephen, impossible with a capital I versus impossible with a lowercase i. Can you hit us with what's the difference? What's going on in there, man? I want to start off by saying 
I'm upset by the fact that it's pretty clear to me that you haven't stopped smiling since I first met you like two years ago. I mean, everybody else in the world has stopped smiling in the interim. I just want you to know, like we've all gone through this thing that's happened. Maybe you heard about it, but no, you just been smiling nonstop. I can tell. All right. If I told you I tried, I'd be lying. Yeah. A great first question. Um, Capital I Impossible, The Art Impossible is a book that's 30 years of research into those people who have accomplished that which has never been done. That's what I'm calling capital I impossible. Small I impossible is those things that we think are impossible for us. Those challenges that we think are outside our own current capability, right? And the example I give in the book is when I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio, it's a blue collar steel mill of town. It's the 1970s. Everybody's poor. Everybody's working glass. I want to be a writer since I was like five years old. I don't know any writers. I don't know how you become a writer, right? It was like I woke up one morning and said, mom, dad, when I grow up, I want to be an elf, right? There's like, and that for all we knew, that's a small lie impossible because there's no kind of clear path between where I am and where I want to go. It statistically allows the odds of success. So is overcoming trauma, rising out of poverty, becoming world-class at anything you do, getting paid for what you love. All of these are small I impossibles. The point is, in 30 years of researching this, I never met anybody who actually went out to accomplish capital I impossible. They accomplished small I impossible after small I impossible until small I impossible until capital I, this big that's never been done before thing, was just what was next. Mm. That seemed to always be the way it got done. We never seemed to go after that. That's too far beyond kind of what you can hold for yourself, but you can start pushing yourself beyond what you think is capable of yourself a little bit at a time. And it racks up into these incredible, incredible developments over time. Thanks for that. Um, what I'm hearing is the, the kind of the Roger Bannister four minute mile sort of conversation where after he's done it, the small lie impossible is just right behind there. And then eventually you break through a whole new frontier, which it's is capital I impossible. internal Bannister stir mm. effect. Yes, for sure. Awesome. That is very true. Thanks, brother. Mm-hmm. My pleasure. Thanks, Amrit. All righty, Lisa, you are up next. So Lisa Beyer is passionate about how to prevent burnout in the digital world. She's the host of two podcasts, Social PR Secrets and Digital Detox Secrets, and is the founder of The Buyer Group, which is a social PR agency. So Lisa, you want to go ahead with your question for Stephen? Yes. My question is, we live in this digital world of distractions, and how do we push ourselves to peak performance, but also avoid burnout? Okay. Two different questions with two different radical answers. When it comes to the digital universe, we always talk about practicing distraction management before going into kind of like a core concentration work session, meaning shutting everything off. We're going to give into temptation. It's really hard to resist our own neurochemicals. You want to remove the threat before you're even in that situation. And it's also just, you know, the brain is a serial processor. We know that. There's no way getting around this biology. So the brain, you can get better at multitasking if you practice it, but it doesn't change the fact that the brain is not built for multitasking. So you're fighting against kind of the way your brain processes information. So batch your digital distractions is what I do, right? If you're going to succumb, succumb like, okay, here's my 90 minutes. I'm in. This is what I'm going to do and that kind of thing. How do you avoid burnout? Short answer in our research, regular access to flow, regular sleep, so seven to eight hours of sleep a night, regular access to flow and an active recovery protocol on the back end tend to 
be the things that will tend to prevent burnout. The play, the time that that does not work. And now I just tell you to extract yourself from the situation. If the number one cause of burnout, as you probably know, is what happens when somebody keeps moving the goalposts, right? When it's one step forward, two steps back, one step forward, two steps back, that is the absolute conditions for burnout neurobiologically. And now you're working for somebody who's passive aggressive. You're working for a psychopath, quit, right? Like extract yourself from that situation. You're not going to win that one. But other than that, if you're not in that, other than that, it seems that regular access to flow coupled to good night's sleep and an active recovery protocol, can, if it can't prevent burnout completely, it can significantly stay it off. It's what we've seen. Thank you. Thanks, Lisa. All righty. Next up is Jay Kalbrun, who is a 24-year-old author, TEDx speaker, and podcast host who loves exploring the underlying themes of fascinating people and movements. Jake, you want to throw your question over to Stephen? Yeah. Thanks for the intro. And Stephen, my question for you is, in your book, you talk about early stage versus late stage passion. Late stage being the yeah. example you use, seeing LeBron do a slam dunk. I think it's the thing that we all see in people that we want. But my question is where you are now looking back in your career, what were some signs of early stage passion that were like indicators that maybe weren't sexy, but show that you were on the right path? I think it's always the same thing, which is the reason passion matters so much. Once you strip away kind of all the kind of ideas it's been labored with is because you get focused for free, right? We pay attention to things that we're passionate about, whether it's a romantic partner we're passionately in love with, or it's a work project that we're super passionate about. We pay attention without having to work hard to pay attention. That's the thing you're after, right? That's the point. So what do you want to look for along the way? The stuff you're paying, are you paying attention to this stuff? Are you? I mean, there are always going to be periods of grit and disappointment. The Biggest problem that people have with early stage passion is, right, they expect it to feel like they think it looks on somebody like LeBron, right? But on the inside of LeBron, you know, as somebody who spent my career with those kinds of people and has maybe kind of worked my way into that ring a little bit, I can tell you that, like, it feels the same on the inside, honestly. Like, late stage passion looks different on the outside, but it, it, it still feels, it's still wobbly on the inside, the, like, you know, in a sense, I think about it as what John Irving said, right? Get obsessed, stay obsessed. That's the, sort of the secret. That's what you're looking for yourself. Once you get the bullshit aside, I'll give you a, a simple example of myself. I can get really burned out on flow science that's directly like I'm working on this thing. I'm working on the neural dynamics of flow and I will get burned out sort of reading about neural dynamics of flow and trying to puzzle solve this thing. And I wonder, am I, have I like lost something in that passion, right? And then I'll just start reading tangentially to my field, like dance therapy or research on the imagination. And suddenly I am totally fired up, right? And it's getting all my, it's happening automatically, right? So even if you're stuck in one spot, when you sort of like work around the edges, it's still there. That's what I'm paying attention to. What am I naturally focusing on, right? Before I developed the passion recipe, which is the, path, the formula we use for the people when I was trying to solve this for myself, one of the questions I asked myself in terms of like, what are the mission level goals in my life was, what am I doing automatically? What like, strip everything else away, left my own devices, where am I naturally going? And where have I naturally gone over time? 
Because that's the other thing. If you look at my life, I may have gone from passion to passion to passion, but there's three core things that I have gone back to over and over and over and again. And those ended up being sort of like my mission statement level. Do you know what I mean? Goals. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. Good question. Yeah, great question, Jake. Next up, we got Matthew Confer, who is the VP of Strategy at Ability and the host of the Learn to Lead podcast. Matthew, excited to hear your question for Stephen. Thanks for the opportunity. The question is this, what surprised you the most about how individuals and organizations have responded to the challenges of COVID and a rethinking of what work looks like for most of us? What's made you optimistic about the future and what leaves you a little bit pessimistic about the future? I'd like to start by pointing out that Armored hasn't stopped smiling. It's freaking me out. (laughs) Um, Okay. Now that that's done, that's a really good question. Um, So the funny thing I thought about COVID, I don't know if you guys noticed this, Matthew, or if you saw this, when it first showed up, right, a week in, I might have even said this to Rian, I said, you know what I've learned so far is leaders going to lead and hustlers going to hustle. That's what I saw. Like COVID literally brought out, like it was really clear to me within a week who this thing was going to mess up and who was going to step out front and take charge. And it was really clear. And it was also really clear because like a weekend, all the hustlers already knew that we were heading for economic meltdown. And my phone was ringing off the hook with people who've got this jiggy idea, this innovative idea, and this hustler's going to hustle, leader's going to lead. That was the first thing I learned and maybe one of the more surprising because it was so obvious. It was just so clear and it didn't change all the way through. What amazed me and what gave me great hope, and you know, it's so funny because, you know, especially here in America, where we're having problems distributing the vaccine, people forget that the vaccine itself, just one, let alone the fact that we have seven or eight at this point, is a miracle. I mean, it's a miracle, like almost biblical in its impact. It used to take five to 10 years to get a vaccine. It would cost $20 billion. The fact that we have 110 different cures and or vaccines that are in the pipeline, in human trials, or actually in the real world is a testament to how far AI has come, how far quantum computing has come. All these these amazing technologies have been brought to bear on it. So like, that's the thing that like, we gloss over it all the time to me, but I still like, I look at it and go, oh my God, as a guy who's been around biotech and medicine and as a journalist covering these things, it's astounding to me. And, you know, I'm listening to people bitch about, I, ha- I can't get my vaccine and I'm like, okay, but you understand we're walking on water over here, right? Like you do get that part kind of thing. And the your third and final question, that is a hard question because I'm not, generally normally pessimistic what i will say the thing that i'm a little saddened by is i had believed that because of the shutdown and the fact that we managed to dent climate change during the accidentally during that period right emissions dropped wildlife started to return to certain places like there were big inroads and i had thought 
hope that there was going to be something of a banister effect around some environmental victories because we don't get environmental victories. We haven't gotten one. We've been fighting huge environmental challenges. The last time there was, there's actually been some environmental good news, but the last time there was something that really caught everybody's attention was the ozone layer hole that, you know, sort of got solved back in the nineties. And it's been sort of bad news coming out since. I mean, there's amazing news everywhere, but nothing like that. And I was like, oh my God, like here. And I thought there was going to be, because obviously solving climate is what's next, right? And it's what's next for all of us. And I thought there was going to be more energy. Like we had a global cooperative effort. Why do we have 110 vaccines? Because there was a global cooperative effort for the first time in history. Right. For the, I don't know if you know what science looks like on the inside, but it's a blood sport. Scientists don't cooperate. They hate each other. They're worse than like any other professional athlete I've ever seen in terms of like the scariest place I've ever been is not a football game. It's a neuroscience conference. Swear to God, like I'm not kidding. So you got like the most difficult people in the world to cooperate at a global level. And the results are magnificent. And I thought we were going to see the same thing moving towards climate, for example. And that, so if there's anything I'm disappointed with, I think it's this thing that I'm perpetually disappointed about, which is our inability to focus on environmental problems that are probably the biggest problems that are right in front of the entire globe. That's, I, I would say. Sounds good, answer. thanks. Sure. Great question, Matthew, love that one. Chris Cochran, you are up next, sir. So Chris is a cybersecurity engineering director and co-host of the Hacker Valley Studio podcast, which is a show that's focused on peak performance specifically in cybersecurity. Yeah, so let's be clear. Chris is the guy on the call we all have to fear. Let's just get that (laughs) out of the way right here, right now. I'm here to protect everyone. (laughs) Okay, good. You're a force for good, I know. I see the white hat in the background. Exactly. (laughs) Thank you so much for doing this. First of all, I just want to say thank you for everything you've done for the community, for society, because I I think your work is really, really crucial to just human development in in general. Love Stealing Fire, uh, love the rise of Superman. And very quickly, The Art of the Impossible became my favorite book in the self-development section of books. And I would love to hear a little bit of the background to one of your favorite aha or eureka moments as you operated in this adjacent possible uh, while you were writing this project. It's interesting because there was it was a really big aha. First of all, thank you. That was very nice of you to say, and I appreciate that. If I got farther ahead of some of the other people who were trying to train flow, it was because I was a neuroscience geek and I was not a psychology geek, right? And we had spent a long time in the 90s trying to train for we, the field of flow researchers, not we, the flow research collective, we, the field of flow researchers, a lot of people. had tried to use the psychology to train people up. In fact, if you read Susan Jackson's Flow in Sports, which she wrote with me, High Chicks Sent Me High, a lot of those experiments are actually written up in there. And if you read that book, you'll see that we are lousy at it. We sucked, right? Once we move to, oh, wow, there's neurobiology underneath here, there's mechanism, the flow states have triggers and these triggers, right? We started getting very reliable and repeatable results. It was really cool. You could, you know, if we put people through zero to dangerous or whatever, we can get a pretty consistent 70% increase in flow measuring pre and post. But here was the problem. It didn't stay that way. Like we got this huge burst in flow followed by two or three months later, this 
massive return to baseline. And when the thing that you're sort of selling is not just peak performance, but like it's the best feeling on earth and it's very addictive. And, you know, you're getting your customers, your clients, your friends basically hooked on more flow. And then the happy flow juice gets turned off because there's a spectacular return to baseline. You have very pissed off customers and clients, right? And so the book talks about how you know the line on the book is that what we just you know flow is necessary for peak performance but not sufficient we learned that the hard that was learned the hard way and the realization that all the things that flow amplifies skill sets known as motivation you know learning and creativity that i talk about in the book that are a bunch of different skills that are housed under those titles those are all the things flow amplifies. It's like a car, right? If you take a Model T Ford on those old skinny tires and you soup up the engine, suddenly the car goes up 250 miles an hour and you still got those skinny ass tires, you know what I, it can't handle the speed. <laughs> That's what was happening. So I, we started to realize that you have to train all the skills that flow amplifies, you have to be trained up in, right? It's magic. You know, it's like one of the examples is creativity. If you're not really versed in like how flow and creativity works, when you get into a creative flow state, every neat idea you have is gold. It's fantastic. It should be followed, right? And if you're going to, if you do that, as anybody who's been in that state and tried to do that, like if you're a writer and you do that, all you're going to end up doing is writing about a hundred different tangents that are going to have nothing to do with, right? You have to learn to pick and choose. You have to learn. Those are creative problem solving skills that have to do with like learning things about basic creativity. It's nothing about flow. Flow is just amplifying something that's already there. But if you don't have those skills, you're not going to be able to do anything with the amplification. So that was, I think, the biggest aha moment along the way is holy crap flow might be optimal performance but it you know it's not the whole toolkit and in fact you know not that that was particularly surprising right I w i'm smart enough to know in, uh, in peak performance everybody always has a thing whenever you have a thing it's got to be the cure-all to everything and i knew enough about peak performance to know that well that was bullshit clearly flow wasn't the solution to everything that would like i knew that but i was shocked to discover that like the other stuff was actually the stuff that flow was amplifying, that that was actually the weakest spot for people. Thank you. Last one, Chris. All right, next up, we got Namish Kaista, who is the host of the 5am Hustle podcast, which is a youth-centered podcast focused on self-development, mental health, and fostering a community of learners to help create a generation that is more content with itself. So Namish, have you got your question for Stephen? Yeah, for sure. So first, I just want to say thanks so much for doing this, Stephen. And so my question was centered around this idea of developing confidence. I think a lot of younger people, especially in like a developmental stage or wanting to like chase their goals or find whatever gives them a sense of flow, often don't get there because they don't feel like they have the confidence to do so. And so my question to you essentially was, how would someone who is a little bit younger, who is a little bit uncertain, go about developing a sense of confidence? And then also, how would you toe the line between having confidence and being narcissistic almost? Those are good questions. The first one, we're going to park the narcissistic one. We might want to park that one for a little bit later because that you and I are going to have a long conversation here on that one. That's a really sort of great, great question. I just don't know what the quick answer is. Let's talk about confidence for a second because the most important thing I think about confidence 
to people is, in a sense, it's the same answer to the question that we had a, a few minutes ago about early stage passion versus late stage passion. And it's the same answer when it comes to courage and bravery. And this is, I think, the thing that people don't tend to understand when you're younger, mostly because you just have to learn this the hard way by falling on your face over and over and over again, unless somebody would be smart enough to tell you. Nobody was smart enough to tell me. I wish somebody would have just told me this because like, the only way to learn this the hard way is awful and it takes a long time. The truth of the matter is there's a, an old movie called Three Kings where there's a, one of the characters, they're going into battle and the character's Spike Jones and he's terrified. He's, he's playing a character who's really scared to go into battle and he turns to George Clooney's character and he's like, how come you got to do the thing you're so scared of before you get the courage? That's a stupid system. And Clooney's like, you know, and that's the point. You literally, how do you get confidence? Nobody has confidence doing the hard stuff you do the hard stuff and you notice that, oh, wow, it didn't kill me. It didn't eat me alive. It doesn't feel good. Like it's never going to feel good. What people are waiting for is it's the same thing with late stage passion versus early stage passion. You have this some idea in your head that competence, courage, or later stage passion means you're not going to feel uncomfortable in ill at ease and unpleasant inside. No, you are. Everybody does. Everybody does. Even like the most confident people in the world got to be the most confident people in the world because they just felt the shit and did it anyways. And that's literally the secret. You just feel it and don't care, do it anyways. And you did that enough times in a row. And it doesn't, it doesn't, it's not even, I don't even know if it feels any less awful, right? Like, Somewhere along the way, I got confident talking to women as a heterosexual. Um, I got confident talking to women. So like I knew that like if I crossed the room to say hello to somebody who I thought was attractive or interesting or whatever, whatever happened, I was going to be okay, right? They could shoot me down. They could be friendly. Whatever happened, I was going to be okay. It didn't change the fact that crossing that room, I always felt scared. That doesn't like, that's just biology. Like that's not, that doesn't actually go away you just learn that that bad feeling doesn't equate to the thing that you think is so horrible in your head, right? The thing you actually learn is that whatever's up here is always a thousand times worse than what's in reality. And so by going at things that scare you a little bit and doing the things that you don't have confidence about, I don't even know if it's that you gain confidence or you start to realize that the shit that you're scared of is not actually the shit that you're scared of is the first answer. Um, when it comes to the narcissism and the confidence line, I think that's actually about dopamine. Dopamine is the reward chemical when we start going after the things we want, rise of the challenge. It tends to make us very, very egotistical. It tends to inflate our egos, It tend, right? And it tends to bring on a, a sense of grandiosity. And what I, what I, this is interesting. This is the exact same advice they give to people who suffer mania, literally, which is, you can't fight the dopamine. The dopamine's a natural signal. It's going to come up and it does make us egotistical. You want the energy. You want the focus. Don't trust anything it's telling you about you. That's just the secret, right? You don't want to believe the dopamine. But for the confidence thing, here's the final thing I want to say about confidence, because there is another secret before you may even start just getting used to the bad feelings. And this sort of, I think, helps you guard against some stuff is 
it's really good to know the, all the stuff that you're good at. Most people are re- actually a lot better at a lot of stuff than they realize. They have what I like to call invisible skills. So I'll give you an example that I talk about in the book. And you, most of the tests that you'll get in school or in college or even in the work world don't bring these out. So I grew up in, uh, let's say growing up, I knew a lot of people who had very volatile, crazy, drunken parents. And so I knew a lot of kids who got really good at diffusing drunken arguments really fast. They could calm angry people down very, because that's survival if you're a kid growing up in that environment. And I see people nodding along who understand what I'm talking about. That's a skill. Oh my God, you can diffuse an argument? quickly, amazing invisible skill, right? As a guy who runs a big company, that's just something that has to happen. Somebody's got to do that job almost on a daily basis, right? Somewhere along the line, when you're running a big company, somebody's always pissed off. Something always somewhere along the way went wrong. Somebody's got to diffuse that, calm that down. So what I tell people to do is make a list of your actual skills, like where your confidence should come from. Because people are like, oh, I don't have any confidence. I don't, I'm like, you're good at a lot more stuff. I, for example, I had to be a bartender to get through college and grad school and like pay my way, right? And as a bartender, I get tips when you like me. So the only way you like me is I learned to talk to everybody. I learned to tell jokes to everybody. I learned to listen to every, right? Like that was an ability that when I became a journalist, I was super successful as a journalist because I was already, I already knew how to talk to everybody because I've been trying to talk to everybody. So they would tip me for years. That skill's not going to show up on any standard. It's a strength, not more than a skill. Identify your invisible skills also and start leveraging those a bit, bringing those in. That's the other thing. When you go into a situation where you're like, I have no confidence there, are you sure? Like you probably have a couple of actual invisible skills in any situation you're going into where you're like, well, okay, I don't know how to do this, this, or this, but I've got these couple things that I'm actually kind of world-class in, even though you wouldn't know it, right? And everybody's got that stuff too. And I think that's pretty useful. This may be one of the squishiest, least scientific answers I've given to any question in a long time, but I think I'm pretty right. I could be wrong, but I think I'm pretty right here. No, that made sense. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Amish. Another great question. Hey there, just going to interrupt. If you are a leader, a knowledge worker, or an entrepreneur, and you want to take your professional success to the next level while reclaiming time, space, and freedom within your personal life, then Zero to Dangerous may be a fit for you. Zero to Dangerous is our flagship peak performance training. You'll work one-on-one with our coaches. You'll go through our whole curriculum. You'll join a community of peak performers from all over the world. We're about seven or 800 strong at this point. It's an amazing group. So if that's of interest to you, go to getmoreflow.com, getmoreflow.com, pop an application through, takes 30 seconds. We would be excited to speak with you to see whether it's a good fit. So that's getmoreflow.com. All right, we got Angie who is next up. Angie's actually recovering from COVID, she just told me. So I'm glad you're on the recovery end of things, Angie. But Angie Carilla is a serial entrepreneur, investor, and content creator. Angie, I'm excited for your question. Yeah, so thank you so much for having me here. And well, as I'm recovering from COVID, something that has surprised me is the resilience of the human body, right? For doing the impossible possible. 
especially the female bodies. So from one neuroscience gig to another, we know that biology scales, but there's more and more information about the infradian rhythm of the menstruation cycles and their effects on neurobiology and peak performance for people with female bodies. I want to know if you have any info for us on how that affects the flow cycle when we have a female body. And it's a great question, and the answer is we don't have a clue. We are currently at the Flow Research Collective doing a, a fairly large study on flow differences between men and women. And I don't think anybody knows it, but what I will tell you is, and this is so far, like you're talking about hormonal cycles and things that are so far outside of my kind of lane. I have no expertise here. So, but the little bit I know of what you're talking about, biology scales, this sound like how your hormone levels go up and down, even though there are male female differences. My understanding is that individual differences will win out. There are meaning individual differences are slightly stronger here than the male female pattern. So I don't think you can answer that question. I don't think that's a scalable answer. Meaning I don't think I can give you male female differences that are going to work that won't be individual. The only thing that we can see, and it seems again, less individual than more male female is flow states have triggers, preconditions that lead to more flow. We know all the triggers work. We know the biology underneath and we know they work for everybody, but people are at different points in their life, more or less susceptible to different triggers. And this can change over time. Sometimes they can stay stable. Those women seem to prefer different triggers than men some of the time. But again, I can't tell you if like, are the male female differences going to be big enough as a pattern to trump individual differences and nothing I've seen says they are, which means you can't make peak performance statements about it, right? You can, cause you're just trying to, it's, it's, it's a blanket statement that shouldn't be, it's still be an individual level, right? So like when we're talking about the biological systems that like kind of produce flow, you're talking about stuff that's been in like the mammalian genes, our seven kind of basic emotional systems. This goes back millions and millions of years. You're asking questions where there's super individual variation in there. And I don't think you can make answers that will work for everybody at this point, but I could be wrong because a bunch of this question is outside it's just outside of what we know about flow at this point and um it bothered us too so that's why we've got our giant research effort on it but it's we just were at the front end of that yeah so since last year that i did the flow for writers i've been measuring my individual response to flow and it does vary with my hormonal cycle but that's on an individual basis, right? As you were saying, like, yeah, I, like I cannot that test that. I, exactly. I'm sure it varies with your hormonal mm-hmm. cycle. Like, of course, that totally makes sense. I think you're right. But I just can't tell because hormonal cycles impact every woman so differently, mm-hmm. right? And so I just don't know how you're going to be able to make blanket statements. And if I can't make a blanket statement, I shouldn't be training it. Right. If it doesn't work for everybody, or I should be teaching it to people as, hey, this is, which is what I did last time. Hey, this is very individual and you're going to have to figure it out for yourself. And here's why. Yeah. Well, that's something so interesting to test, but thank you so much for your answer. Sure. 
Thank you, Angie. All righty, Josh Grinowitz is up next. Josh is the co-host of Story Matters, which is a podcast about the use of story for social change and the power of narrative to shape culture, especially during the times of crisis. You want to throw your question in, Josh? Absolutely. Thanks, Ryan. And uh, thank you, Stephen. And thank you both for making the time for this. I've been running around like Charlie in the Chocolate Factory with a golden ticket all week. And so, Stephen, you're my Willy Wonka. Rian, you're way too tall to be an Oompa Loompa, but maybe like three Oompa Loompas stacked on top of each other. <laughs> He's really that. tall, I got to say. So he might, <laughs> might be need four. to be four, Josh. He might be four Oompa Loompas. Yeah, four, like, and, four with, Oompa and with the hair, right, with the hair, he might be five. <laughs> right. I'm just yeah, saying. the hair is a fifth one. Yeah. My question is, and for my audience, focused on storytelling, and obviously, and this kind of connects to massively transformative purpose, right? Because, you know, that is yours, and Stephen, and, and you really push, you know, kind of cultural change. And so I'm wondering about narrative specifically for cultural change and how you see narrative as playing a role in that. Josh, it's a great question. I'm going to first tell you why I can't answer it. And then I'm going to try to fumble my way towards an answer. I can't answer it because I don't do cultural change. Like cultural change may come out of the work that I do or whatever. But I think to me, as a guy who, who knows a little bit about complexity science, when I look at culture, like I think like people who want to be cultural architects, for example, freak me out. Like that's I see narcissism. I see egomania. When I hear terms like that, I think, oh, my God, culture is a complex system. And like, first of all, like everything we've learned is that, you know, small initial changes lead to unpredictable, literally by complex design, huge changes in outcomes. So those kinds of things, I like you can certainly make a lot of noise over here, right? I can write my books. Cultural architecture, culture change is saying, this is the effect my books are going to have in the world. And I know that. That I can't do. That's not up to me at all. Just like I don't read my reviews, right? Because I don't care. It's my, like, my job is to write the books and engage with the writing. Once my publisher likes the book, I'm done caring about, about the words. I will promote the book, judging the words and everything. That's everybody else's job now. The change it brings into the world, that's everybody else's job. That's how I think about it. So I, it's cultures outside my lane. I do the neurobiology of peak performance. I do words together in a straight line. That said, what I do want to talk about with story that I think is so, two things about story that are super important and these you can talk about. So one is flow is this absorptive state of consciousness, right? Like, and one of the reasons we get so absorbed in it is because the part of our brain that is our, in the prefrontal cortex, the ego basically, right? Gets mm -hmm. very, very quiet. Story has the same impact, right? Why can stories change us so well? Because they slip past our ego. Right? There's a whole Sufi storytelling tradition based around mystical change starting from story but built on this whole idea, right? It's that stories slip past the ego. So you actually can start communicating at a, at a deeper level with people, first of all. And the second thing is I always tell people that, you know, this is why history matters so much when you're trying to learn a subject. And this is some of the learning stuff that's in art impossible because our brain is a cause and effect machine. It loves making narrative stories, right? It's going to do that automatically. So one of the things about trying to learn a new subject, if you can learn a little bit of its overarching history, 
ahead of time, what happens is you've given the brain the narrative architectural story. And now as you learn different details, it has the big picture, it has the story. So now it knows where to hang the details and you learn faster. So when I think about story and cultural change, I think about the stuff that I know for real, that is like neurobiologically, that isn't like, like on the front end of the system is real. Like I know story sneaks past people's ego, right? Because that work has been done. And I know that the brain itself naturally loves story and cause and effect. And like, those are things I start with and I go, okay, those are pieces I can sort of exploit and get, you know, and, and get busy with when I think about that problem. And it's not that I think your premise is wrong for you, by the way, I think your premise is wrong for me in terms of like, you know, that's how I think about those things. And I also think that like, in my experience in the work that I'm doing in and around the edge of altered states of consciousness, when people who work in all states consciousness start yelling about we're going to change culture, bad things happen. (laughs) (laughs) Historically, bad things happen, right? Doesn't go well for all involved. So I'm just going to stay away from that one. Yeah, that was a fantastic answer. Thank you. Thanks, Josh. Appreciate that. Ali Henderson is up next. Ali is the presenter of Take My Advice brackets, I'm not using it, a podcast that explores how to separate the good advice from the bad. Yeah, exactly. That's that's how it's written. That's That's awesome. That's cute. Yeah, it's cool. And it's about, yeah, it explores how to separate good advice from bad and why the right thinking can help you design a work life that will serve you well in our fast evolving world. So Ali, I'm excited to hear your question with that. Thanks, Ria. How you doing, Stephen? You all right? Yeah, how are you? I'm good. So I read in your book about the importance of constraints to creativity, which I completely agree with. So here's here's a constraint for you. I've got three young kids, so I don't sleep very much. And this is sort of something that sort of seems insurmountable to me. And of course, sleep is critical to recovery and feeding into flow. So I'm just interested with this idea Am I just inherently disadvantaged to achieving sort of, you know, peak performance? Is that this sort of never-ending exhaustion of my kids who don't understand that I'm looking to achieve my best and they inhibit me from, from you know, reaching optimal performance? So it's interesting. People hate it when I talk about children this way. Let's also talk about staying in our lane. Not only do I not have any children, so I have no expertise here whatsoever, I can't stand the little fuckers. So like, you really shouldn't take my advice here. And I will also tell you, there is a disadvantage to having children when it comes to peak performance, but it's the distractions are an issue. The real issue seems to be that neurobiologically, dopamine is what drives us to go after challenges, right? And endorphins, serotonin, those chemicals, those are like rest and relax, satiated, be happy with what you have. Endorphins and norepinephrine are go get more chemicals, right? And what happens is babies produce oxytocin, endorphins. So all the pro-social chemicals that are meant to calm you down and make you happy with what you have. So they can, more than distraction, there seem to be drive problems, right? Some people, because of the neuro, biologically, you're designed to start favoring slightly different neurochemicals, especially for like a seven-year window, which is you know sort of what it used to take an early hominid to get to the point that they could fend for themselves a little bit. But the larger answer to your question is when it comes to distraction kids, yeah, you're kind of fucked. I mean, there's just no way around it. 
if you're in, interested in peak performance, don't have children. I mean, I don't know what to say here. No. Uh, but what I am saying here is how young are they, by the way? I've got an eight-year-old, a five-year-old, and a two-year-old. Okay, with the two-year-old, I don't know how to help you. The five and the eight-year-old, you can at least have conversations a little bit. What I always say with flow work and big performance work is most people, bosses who can be just as rational as children and spouses and husbands who can also be in that category, if you need time for complete concentration, it feels like you're taking time away from them. The truth of the matter is flow amplifies productivity and performance so much that if you can keep that time away, you're going to get more time back in the long run. So what I try to tell people to do is have your conversations ahead of time, bosses, spouses, children, like, Hey, I get it. I'm saying, leave me the fuck alone right now. But if you do that, you get more of me. Right. And then it's much more of a negotiation rather than a, a one way street, which tends to work a little bit better, but it is you know, seven, eight hours of sleep is kind of necessary for peak performance over time. You can, I mean, it totally means that you can, you don't have any, you don't get to screw around with hydration, with nutrition, with social support, with any of the others, like so-called peak performance basics, because your sleep is going to be erratic. You can't mess around. Some people have had Andrew Uberman, who we do some work with at Stanford has had a lot of luck using some of the yoga Nidra techniques that respiration mm -hmm. techniques to kind of work around this a little bit but truthfully i'm kind of lost like i've got i need <laughs> seven eight hours of sleep a night to perform yeah. at my best um you certain things i can do right i can talk i can do interviews i can do whatever but it asks me to write something which is like the hardest thing i do with less than like seven six and a half hours of sleep and it's it's a hard hard thing to do I will write something for you, but there's no guarantee you're going to be able to read it. <laughs> Thanks. Sure. Sorry, I didn't have slightly better news. I think it's an ongoing negotiation. I think there are problems and I think it's worth, I think once you could identify what they are, you can start yeah. kind of seeing the solution. Because it's also, I mean, one of the ways you fight back about like, you know, the switch that children bring to neurochemicals is get more dopamine in your system. Make sure you're mm. doing stuff that's producing dopamine. Yeah, and I ask it, and I ask it actually because for me, I have designed systems which allow me to have you know focused periods, short periods of concentration where I achieve flow. And actually, as you say, it does give time back. So that's yeah, it does that's give time back. What, yeah, and you can, you know, if you train yourself to it, I don't think it's long term ideal, but like little twenty minute blocks, thirty minute blocks, where it's going to screw you. And this is the stuff Tim Ferriss talks about in the Art of Impossible. See, this is one of those seventeen minute answers, guys. Sorry about that. Um, <laughs> where uh, is creative work, right? Because creative work can take, it needs time luxury, right? I always say that when I'm writing, one of the reasons I like, I, I like four hour writing blocks because if I get, like, I need to be able to spend an hour on a sentence. Like if I try to spend an hour on a sentence during my work day, are you kidding? Like I could never do it. I can't, I don't have more than 30 seconds for a sentence, right? Yeah. But at four in the morning when I start my work day and nobody's up and nobody needs me, yeah, if, I, if a sentence or two needs an hour, I've got it. I, I can spend it then. Thanks, Ali, for that question. It's an interesting one. A lot of our, ton of our clients struggle with the same, the same thing. Yeah, it's a tough one. It's a, it's a hard one. Yeah, it is. All right, Marita, you are up next. So Marita Espada is the host of the Turning Point podcast where she speaks with the top creators and entrepreneurs as they discuss business, creativity, and mental health. 
and how those things interconnect with each other. So Marita, would you like to ask your question to Stephen there? Thank you for the intro and thank you for the opportunity. My question is, do people need to be open to experience a flow state or um, can this just happen for them? And if it just happens for them, what could be going on in their brain that they've experienced this? It's a great, awesome, insightful question. If Scott Barry Coffin was here, he'd be jumping up and down, smiling also, because he's he's the great god of openness to experiences a psychological trait in this, in this research. But flow states have triggers. One of them is novelty. So slightly complicated answer. Most of our world is shaped by most reality. Most of what we experience in the world is, is either our fears or our goals, right? Like we don't really live in reality. We live in a reality that is predominantly dominated by our fears and our goals. It's because, you know, even though our senses gather 11 billion bits of information a second, bandwidth of consciousness, meaning the entire I'm awake bandwidth is like 2000 bits and attention is like 300 bits, which is the shit we can actually pay attention to at any one time. But even at the conscious level, most of what is leaking through is either stuff we're scared of that we're trying to avoid or stuff we want that we're trying to get to because it's a limited bandwidth just for information processing reasons. So when you don't have openness to experience, you tend to start privileging much more of the fears rather than the goals. Openness to experience tends to like give you more novelty and more, if you don't have it, you're going to get more pessimism. And what that translates to is just basically less bits to be creative with, right? Less bits to go forward with and less novelty to notice, to produce dopamine, to drive you into flow. So some of that is there, and there does seem to be a correlation between openness to experience and flow proneness. That said, flow is ubiquitous. One of the most well-established facts about flow is that flow shows up in anyone, anywhere, provided certain initial conditions are met, which is to say novelty is only one of 22 flow triggers, and there are a lot of, you know, a lot of different ways in for lots of different people. And the same dopamine you can get from novelty you can get from unpredictability, you can get from risk, you can get from insight. So for example, one of the most common flow states in the world is reading. Where somebody's reading a book, they get absorbed in the book, and suddenly there's an idea in the book that sort of catches their attention and connects to an older idea they had. They have that little insight. Suddenly you're off and you're thinking you've got all the, that's all, that's right, that's a reading-based flow state. And that insight is dopamine. So a lot of people who might not be open to experience because they're shy, they don't want to interface with the real world, they live inside their head and they live in books and can get in this way because it's totally you know, within who they are. So I think as a general rule, openness to experience helps. I think it also personally, this is not something I have, it makes life a lot more fun, period. It's just easier to live in this world if you're open to experience just across the boards. And it's one of those kind of personality traits that, you know, even if it's not in you, like cultivated over long periods of time, because we can cultivate personality traits, right? They're not, we used to think these were death sentences. They're not death sentences. It just takes a while to change them. Same thing with like risk tolerances and things like that. But those are really worthwhile things to, to train up and to play with, I think. Thank you so much. Thanks, Marita. Good question. Yeah, I like that. I like that answer as well, Stephen. All righty. So we got the best for last. We got Audrey. 
think is our final one here. Nice to see you, Audrey. So Audrey Mayer is a high-performance athlete competing on the Kiteboarding World Cup, and she's also a fitness and nutrition coach and the founder of the Find Your Superpower podcast. She's another so, one of these people who's just not going to stop smiling. You know I don't trust all these <laughs> smilers at all. Too many uh, smiles. I mean, je- just because you're a kiter doesn't mean you get a pass <laughs> here, okay? <laughs> Guys, thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Stephen. So my question, and Stephen, you were talking earlier about the easiest way to get into flow was reading. So my question is, you're talking about micro flow in micro flow. I'm not sure if I pronounce right because of my French speaking, right? Micro and macro. So does it mean that if I want to be in a macro state of flow, do I have to surf a hundred way, hundred foot wave? And if I'm reading, I will be in a micro flow. Two answers. On the surface, yes. I mean, yes. It, I didn't say that reading is one of the most common flow states on earth. It's not, not the easiest way to get into flow. It's just one of the more, so is conversations between middle managers in offices. Like this is just like when they survey, where does flow show up the most, right? This is where they find it. But for sure. I mean, we've all, I think, had an experience one way or another with reading or insider creativity. We're like, what starts out, if it's one insight, if it's, you're just getting a little bit of dopamine, right? That's microflow. But if you have insight after insight after insight after insight after insight, right? You can read and think your way, especially if you're doing kind of creative problem solving from microflow. I don't know if you're going to get into a full-blown macroflow state where time has completely slowed all that stuff, but you're, it's a pretty goddamn deep flow state so you can build micro flow into macro flow the other point about the 100 foot wave versus the reading your way in risk tolerances are individual so risk is a flow trigger because it produces dopamine but my risk tolerances are off the charts because i'm an active sport athlete and i have been for 50 years and i've broken a lot of bones and my friends are insane right and i was a professional journalist and like people were always trying to kill us so I just got used to, right, my risk tolerances are crazy. How I train for peak performance is not how somebody else should train because risk tolerances are individual. Like, you know, I always say that for Laird Hamilton, he, you know, if Laird wants to drop into flow, he does have to go out and surf a 50-foot wave of Jaws, right, before he's paying attention. For me, give me a four-foot wave at Malibu and I'm, like, at least paying some attention. Five feet, I'm definitely paying attention. You got my attention, Right. So it's totally individual. And, and also, you know, even if you're just talking about dopamine triggers, your dopamine receptors grow in atrophy and change over time. Right. So like you risk may be like physical risk may be the biggest flow trigger for you right now, but two years from now, it may turn out that that insight pathway is actually strong, become stronger for you because you start to shift over time and change over time. Does that make any sense? Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you. Good. Thank you. Thanks, Audrey. Great questions, guys. I've been enjoying this a lot. Hopefully, all of you have as well. Hopefully, all our listeners have. Just to, yeah, maybe even just ironically with a smile, um, 10 years ago, I struggled with six years of depression, a bit of background about me. And then on that journey, there's been a massive message that I'm carrying in my heart through the Inspired Evolution, which is that health and purpose are the same thing. <laughs> And that's just kind of my truth. When you're healthy, you're on purpose. When you're on purpose, you're healthy. One of the things you said in the book really just like played me like a guitar, strummed every six strings, which is 
why not going big is actually bad for us. Can you tell us about that, Stephen, please? Yeah, that was the other answer to the, like, what was the other big aha moment along the way to this book was this was, I was shocked by this. So I'll tell you the full story. I was reading Lost Connections, Jonah Hariri's book about depression, right? And where, what does he do? He says, okay, you know, the science is wrong. It says trauma and genetics are the big causes of depression, but they're not. There are these other causes. And my work, as you know, is I go from zero up to Superman because there's a whole world of people who get people from broken back to zero, right? That's all of psychiatry. That's all of psychology. That's a lot of like, that's all the self-help. That's a lot of stuff that other people do and are great at. And so I don't ever pay attention there. And usually when I do look on that side, it's stuff like schizophrenia because schizophrenia shares a lot of overlap with creativity. And like, I look in other places, I don't tend to look in the like obvious depression literature, but I'm reading this book and I'm like reading all the other major causes of depression and they're talking about, well, lack of meaningful work. And then they, they the one point he's like breaking down what, what does lack of meaningful work mean? And he's like, well, the work that doesn't produce curiosity, passion, purpose, that you're not, you don't have autonomy or mastery. And I'm like, wait a minute, you're naming all the intrinsic motivators here. And when you actually start looking under the hood of what he's saying and start realizing that he's talking about neurochemicals here, right? Mm-hmm. It made even more sense than I like. Now, in a sense, it of course it works this way, right? If, like, of course, if the system is designed to go to its full potential, right? We're designed to go after big challenges, not using the system the way it's designed is bad for it, right? When I try to use my vacuum cleaner as a hammer, it's bad for my vacuum cleaner, it turns out, right? Like, when you don't try to use your biology, for what it's how it's designed to be used, of course it's bad for the system. Like I, I think the biggest aha moment in that one is how could I have not seen it because it's so goddamn <laughs> obvious. You know what I mean? Like once you <laughs> say it out loud, you're like, oh, um, okay. But like you know, we've known bits and pieces of this puzzle for a really long time. But the other flip side of that that I think is so important is that like trauma and genetics get a lot of run in today's world as the big causes of depression and neither of them really are those are not actual like tr- genetics alone cannot right it's only 50 percent of, of the equation even if you cannot make the neurochemistry at all right which is not actually how it works anyways but it's there's it's only 50 percent of it and most of the time trauma doesn't lead to post-traumatic stress disorder it leads to post-traumatic growth that's mm. how the system is designed to work. Those are not the major causes of I'm stuck in the mud and I'm depressed. It's lack of meaningful values, lack of meaningful work, right? Lack of exposure. And it's literally, you know, it's the peak before it's the system designed for peak performance gone horribly wrong. Thank you so much for sharing that answer with us. Really appreciate it, Stephen. I'll uh, be mindful of so many amazing questions in this space. So I'll hand it on. <laughs> Thanks, Amber. Nice, nice question, boss. All righty, Lisa, you want to dive back in? Yes. And thank you for having me on. I have been pretty obsessed with flow for the past couple of years since we were introduced and also the connection of flow and cannabis and CBD. I know you guys are doing the research on that, but my audience is a combination of entrepreneurs and digital marketers and public relations professionals. And what can you share with us that would be digestible to them? CBD is an interesting one because we have found nothing with CBD yet, though, though, and I think Rian may jump in a little bit on this one too, because I know he's a big fan of CBD for recovery as well. 
So CBD certainly seems to, definitely promotes healthy sleep for sure. And it's phenomenal, you know, as an anti-inflammatory and like a lot of the stuff you're trying to get at in kind of for active recovery periods uh, in, a, in a high flow lifestyle or, you know, post flow during the recovery period. I think CBD, um, I think a ton of research needs to be done, but I think there's enough, there's a ton of anecdotal evidence that's pointing in that direction. And certainly nobody's going to break anything by trying that one, right? Where the relationship between flow and cannabis is, this is a longstanding mystery from both kind of art and action sports that people consistently use cannabis. I mean, you also see it in basketball and things like that. Cannabis is a performance enhancing substance. And in action sports, they talk about the hippie speedball, which is coffee and marijuana, usually a a sativa-based joint as a flow hack. And neurobiologically, there's a lot going on there. Like it makes a lot of sense. It does mimic a lot of things going on in flow. And all we've been trying to do is just take a deeper look at that and, you know, there are certainly like, I, we were having this conversation yesterday, I was with a bunch of athletes and we were talking about using flow as an action sport, like I, we're skiers and everybody went as an agreement. There were like eight of us in the conversation saying that until cannabis was horrible and would block flow if they tried to apply it when the body was cold and nobody was warmed up, right? Because the hippie speedball is always like exercise first then coffee, then cannabis, not cannabis. Like that's the way it, it seems to work. Like people are warmed up first and then they add those compounds and trying to invert it flow. It seems like cannabis at the front end totally can block flow and CBD may do the same thing. And this may have, have to do with, and this is some of the work that we've been doing on the normal dynamics of flow. And this is not yet published or proven at all, but in certain situations, possibly in all situations, you may have to trigger the fight response to get into flow, even if it's only for a microsecond, but like that little quick burst of adrenaline, norepinephrine, testosterone, a couple other things. And if you're stoned or super relaxed, which is what CBD will give you, it seems to be blocked that because the endocannabinoid system is the master regulator of the stress response. And so it seems like there's timing questions about when you sequence it. And this doesn't even start to account for individual variations, which are going to be possibly impossible to get past to find one blanket answer here that works for everybody. But that's some of the stuff we're doing. And I love it as research because I think it's super interesting. But mostly, I think it's super interesting because most of the flow research and most of the flow science and most of the science that's been done on systems that play a big role in flow, like executive attention or salience or like all that work was done before we even knew we had an endocannabinoid system where we knew we had an endocannabinoid system, but we didn't realize what the hell it was. And that it was a master regulator and a second immune system and all the stuff that we now know what it is. We didn't know any of those things when we were doing all the biology and all the other foundational systems that play a big role in flow. So it's like we've got this master, you know, neurochemical system that's in the middle of flow and flow science, and yet most of the science that contributes to flow was done before we even knew the system existed. So I think it's a really cool line of research. We will be publishing a bunch of papers this year that talk about uh, one directly on flow and cannabis, and another one that that talks a little bit more about the fight response and the endocannabinoid system and stuff we've just been talking about. So we're on this. Hopefully we'll be sharing it with you guys soon, 
but that's sort of the stuff we can talk about. And by the way, I did a talk at, at a conference for Flocana on cannabis and flow that is, I think it's floating around online. Yeah, I'll throw the link in, Stephen. It is online. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you. Nice. Thanks for the question, Lisa. All righty. Next up, we got Jake. Want to dive in, Jake? Yeah. To piggyback on Amrit's question about health and the intersection of health and flow, when people, and I know you've had a personal experience, are healing from these experiences with flow, can you talk about what is actually going on in the brain that is leading to people's health and recovery? Oh, how, why flow impacts the uh, immune system. So this is really simply put, when we move into flow, stress hormones are flushed out of your system. So the work that I was talking about was with autoimmune conditions, which are essentially nervous systems gone haywire. So when you flush all the stress hormones out of the system, you're resetting the nervous system. And that tends to be very, very useful. It helped me with my autoimmune condition. But simultaneously, all the neural chemicals that underpin flow boost the immune system. And one way to think about this is flow is how we're kind of evolutionarily shaped to deal with crisis, right? To like successfully handle crisis. And you don't want to be getting sick in a crisis, right? Like nobody gets sick in a crisis. You get sick on the back end of a crisis, right? The crisis stress goes away from your life and then you get sick. Your system relaxes and then you get sick. Part of this may be because flow shows up more in a crisis and boosts the immune system and resets the nervous system. Um, there's a bunch of new neuroimmunology that has taken, this was Herb Benson's work originally, talked about some of it in his book, The Breakout Principle. A lot of people have taken it farther than this in kind of neuroimmunology and have looked at these questions and built on this, but that's kind of the basic, really simple answer. Gotcha. Thank you. Sure. Thanks, Jake. Chris, you're up next, sir. May have broken the order, but go for it, Chris. In our show, we operate under this philosophy of cybersecurity professionals are mental athletes with zero off-season. We're playing chess against hackers every single day. And also, it's one of the only occupations where we're office-based, but we have teams and individuals that are using flow, purpose, and passion against other folks that are also looking for flow, purpose, and passion. I was just curious, what would you advise for the folks that want to make sure that the right side wins in that endeavor? Do I have to pick the right side? No, I'm just <laughs> um, that's a really good question because it is, in a sense, flow against flow, right? Because mm -hmm. it's coder against coder. Right. And flow is a neutral tool, right? It's mm -hmm. just a tool. So good or for ill. Mihai Csikszentmihalyi used to love to point out, it was his favorite thing, he used to love to point out that flow shows up in robbers. He may be the last man on earth who uses the word robbers. <laughs> um, and it's interesting because one of the first, you know, we Microsoft, which was a, did a ton of flow work over the years and flow was really important. It was their security division that actually persisted over time because of all the pattern recognition stuff that you guys have to do to do your job that just demands flow and you can't really be good at your job if you're not in flow. And they figured this out. Like the whole company sort of was designed around flow principles and then they sort of went away for a bunch of years, but not the, the cybersecurity division never stopped doing it because I, in a sense you couldn't for the very reasons you, you, you kind of enumerated, which I, th I found very interesting. Um, I'd fight with knowledge, you know what I mean? Like, right, for now, Art Impossible talks about all the flow triggers and, and things like that. I mean, you know, 
I would start with the blueprint. The interesting question is, does flow have an ethical dimension, right? Because flow over time does appear to expand empathy, right? So that's there's research on this. Some of it came out of the Harvard Development Project, access to flow over long periods of time. And I think that's going to be a really, you know, that's an interesting question, right? Like if you start out a black hat hacker and it's a high flow thing for you and that's what's driving you forward, will the state itself eventually sort of shift you over the empathy? Is there wow. a really interesting question? It might be like give us a, a case, a survey, way to survey into the field, right? And figure out if there's any merit to this, but that's just a research study. Like, I'm not really solving your question. I'm just talking thoughts. No, that's incredible. That's interesting. Thanks, Chris. All right, Matthew, I know you got a bounce, sir. So you wanna, you wanna chime in beforehand? Thanks so much. Uh, you talk frequently about the power of, at the end of the day, focusing on the process of declaring victory and then chilling. Why is that such a productive way to close the day? And then what does that actually look like for you on what could be described as a normal day? Declaring victory, because you got to tell you, if you're a peak performer, you don't want to stop, right? If you're obsessed you know, or passionate or whatever, you never take breaks and you don't know how to walk away. So one, I talk about you know, creating a clear goals list. And when the last item is you know, check off the last item, and when it's done, be done. And one of the things about determining a clear goals list is you're figuring out how many items go on the list. Well, how many things can you be excellent at it a day? So one of the founding girls, like at peak performance, I want to be excellent at everything I do. So if I know I can be excellent at about seven or eight things a day, I'm not going to try to do a ninth or a 10th or an 11th because I know I can't be at my best, but I also know that like, it's really hard for me to stop. So that's why knowing when to declare victory and the reason you want an active recovery protocol question I answered earlier prevents burnout, right? Like it's one of the ways to prevent burnout. And my active recovery protocol is roughly the same. I will do 15 minutes of sort of restorative yoga and use an infrared sauna and probably we'll do that two to three times a week or Epsom salt baths. It often depends on what kind of like physical exercise I'm doing. You know what I mean? Like I find that when I come back from skiing or mountain bike riding or, you know, like I want to get in the bath. Right. And so like on days when I haven't beaten the shit out of myself, I find the sauna works better, but you know, so tonight, because I've been working all day, it'll be a sauna, not a bath. Like yesterday, because I skied all day and I could barely move when I came home, it was the bath. Love it. Thanks so much. Sure. Thanks, Matthew. Great question. Josh, you want to dive in next, boss? So I'm going to stick with Sufi and storytelling for 500, please, Stephen. Um, I actually want to ask and just switch gears a little bit and ask, about your decision to write The Last Tango in Cyberspace as a novel, dealing with some of the same themes that you've dealt with in Bold and Abundance and the future is faster than you think and why you made that decision in the first place and what science fiction or just fiction in general allowed you to do that nonfiction doesn't. You know, I'm trained, well, I'm trained as a poet, but by the time I was in grad school, I, I'm a fiction writer. So I've written novels for a long time. And I felt like I, I wrote first books a novel. Then I have two books that are done that are sitting in drawers that are both novel. And 
they're in drawers for a reason. Like I, that was, I had unfinished business. You know what I mean? And by the way, last tango, which I know a lot, a lot of people like it. I know it was a bestseller and, and, but I, I still don't think I got it right. And I have a novel coming out next November called the devil's dictionary. That is the first time. This is the first time I think I actually may have gotten it right. Um, and uh, I write the novels. They're fun. I love writing. I mean, that's like the thing that like, People are always like, oh my God, you've written so many books. How, you know, how do you, I love writing. Like it's super fun. I'm itchy when I'm not writing something, when I don't have something to write, then I'm, you know, and that's very, very, very rare. But like, so the books, the nonfiction books take a lot of energy, but I wrote Last Tango specifically also because I was writing faster. Peter and I, Diamandis and I were talking about the book faster and we were talking about trying to look at, converging exponentials, right? Individual lines of exponential technologies that are converging. And we were trying to talk about what they were going to create in the future. And I literally couldn't hold it in my head. I wrote last tango to take all the stuff that we knew was coming into the real world. And that I was writing, going to write futures faster than you think about. I put it in the world and told a story in the middle of the world because I like I I wrote faster because the book I had re- or I wrote last time because the book I wrote before Stealing Fire was not fun to write. It sucked. <laughs> I hated writing it. It was a hard project for me, and as a result, I came out the other end sort of mad at writing. And I wanted to, you know what I mean? Like I I just wanted to write something really fun that was playful and it was totally, you know. So in a sense, I started doing that simply as a way to clear my head. But what I was doing with it was trying to take all the ideas that were going to be in faster and put them in a world so I could actually see what that world looked like because we were, you know, going to write this book about, you know, where the technology was going and, you know, the issues we were having. It's very hard to predict where converging exponentials will go. And the only way I could start to even think about the problem was literally through storytelling. But uh, that's, you know, that's how my brain works. I'm a storyteller one way or another kind of by trade. So like I have to put things into, you know, into that form so I can think about them better. It's, 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 a, it's a way to help me think. And the final thing is this series of books is also, when I say this series, you won't get it. But if I were to find the antecedent for Last Tango in cyberspace, it'd be none of the books you named and it'd be a small furry prayer. I have been trying to solve environmental problems in the world for a very long time. And I tried to do it in small furry prayer. And the problem was it's hard to get people who don't care about the environment or animals or plants interested in plants or animals or the environment. Like they literally like, they just don't care. And it's, it's a cognitive bias. It's literally we know this. This is a, a long-standing problem in ecological psychology, which is when you live in boxes and you stare at boxes, your brain filters out the stuff that's not critical to survival. So what goes away? The natural world for most people, right? And so one of the big environmental reasons we're dealing, dealing with environmental challenges, most people don't actually see the very things we're trying to save, like at a biological level, like it, it's not getting in through perception. So I've been trying to use story. I tried head on in nonfiction that didn't work. Then I tried building, creating equilibrium planet home, a company that kind of to do that. And that didn't work. Then I tried talking about environmental issues and abundance and bold and, uh, that didn't work. And so finally I was like, God damn it. I'm running out of like things I can do here. 
I'm going to try it as a novel. And Last Tango was effort one. And I was still trying to do super fancy things with the language in that book. Like, it's cool to read. And if you speak noir, cyberpunk thriller, you love it. And I love it. But if you don't speak those languages, it's not your thing. But I think I finally found a way to communicate all that information with like less fancy in the language and more, you know what I mean? Like Art of Impossible was a lot simpler as a book to read than say Rise of Superman because I've gotten better at talking about this stuff over time, right? And yeah. so hopefully the same thing will be true here with the environmental issues and you know maybe maybe I'll be able to break through on that one or this could be a fool's errand. But I'm yeah. just the kind of guy who will file an idea right off the edge of the world. You know, yeah. <laughs> and we'll go with you. <laughs> That's nice, a- Josh. Namish, you want to dive in, sir? Yeah, for sure. So, the last question we ask every guest that comes on our podcast is if you could go back to your younger self, let's say your teenage self, what's one piece of advice you would give yourself? I'm going to answer your question, but I have to tell you why I'm not going to answer your question before I answer your question, which is I love who I am. I love today. Today, I like, and if I would have given my teenage self any piece of advice, I wouldn't have gotten here. I would have tilted the trajectory somewhere. So I don't think I would have changed a thing. That said, I get what you're asking. And it's a very simple thing. And I think most people learn this usually through tragedy, like something hard and horrible happens. But it was one, it was the clearest lesson to me on the other side of like Lyme disease. So when I got sick, I was 30 years old and it took everything. It took like, I, it bankrupted myself. I lost the woman I thought I was going to marry. I led the house, the job I spent a decade trying to get and took three years from my life. And on the back end of it, I realized very, first of all, I realized like, no, the universe was not going to like suddenly grant me my life back. You know what I mean? I, I really actually was that fucked. And my life was going to be nothing more or nothing less than I made it. And I think there are a lot of people who go through life thinking there's some other secret besides just doing the work. And I think there's a lot of people who go through their younger years thinking that like, there's going to be some magic wand that comes along and taps you on the head and suddenly you're an adult and you're going to like figure out how to do all and like neither happened. Life is nothing more or less than doing, showing up and doing the work, showing up and doing the work. And it's literally the way you get farther faster is just by showing up and doing the work. It's the small levers that actually produce the big changes. And that's the thing that seems hard to understand when you're younger, I think. I don't even know if I'm right. I don't That might just be me, but that's what I'm thinking. Was that even any good answer? Yeah, I thought that was great. We got one final question, which I believe is Audrey's. So Audrey, you want to throw the last question into the, into the ring? Yes, I'd love to. And it's about flow and mental state, depression. And actually, I had that question this morning in my shower, and I'm like, Wow, we feel so good when we flow, we motivated, we created, we so much projective. So why today we're not using flow treatment to heal people from depression, for example, or from other sickness? 
This is a really interesting, you asked a great, this is a great question to end on because I have been, this is the thing I've been countering over and over and like over again, talking to people about Art of Impossible, like on, th- on this very topic. And I'm starting to realize what it is that I'm looking at. And it, cause it took me a while to sort of wrap my head around it. I think the answer is more than anything else. We have this, I, the, there's ideas that seem to be pervasive in culture right now that you got to fix the broken before you can perform at your best, right? And, and the way I always, exp- I'm like, I spent my life writing about the most extraordinary people in the history of the world. None of them started out extraordinary. They all started out like you and me, and most of them were broken and continue on a certain level to be a little bit broken today. They were just a lot broken before and they're less broken now. The point is that like there is the way to fix the broken. You don't fix the broken first and then start performing at your best, right? The pa- it's the same path. The easiest way to fix the broken is to start, you know, applying the tools of peak performance because they w- it's the same system. So I don't have the, why are they not using flow to treat depression? I don't have a clue, right? Maybe, uh, it is hard to access play. The flow triggers are less susceptible. You're less susceptible to them. When, possibly when you're depressed, there may be different ways to treat it that way, but I don't know. But I, the thing that I, what I, the main reason is honest to God, there's an idea in culture and maybe it's because so many of our, our ideas about mental health and psychology were dominated by psychologists who, who have a, their investment is in fixing the broken. Right. That's like that's not what the field was developed for, but from Freud forward, right? William James said, no, no, we're going to celebrate everything. And Freud came along and said, no, no, no. The right path of psychology is we're going to we're going to heal the broken. Right. We have to fix the broken. That's what we do with this. And from that point forward, that's with the exception of the positive psychology and a little bit of peak performance stuff. That's the bulk of the work that's been done. So there's a lot of investment on the like fixing the broken. And so nobody pays attention to the other half of it. But the bigger point is that every successful person I've ever met across the board is running from something just as fast as they're running towards something. You need the double motivation, right? I talk a lot about, I wrote a blog about it somewhere on small s spite as a motivator, right? Capital S spite, big S spite, that's not, it's a lousy motivator. You can use it as a motivator. It'll motivate the hell out of you. But you're, by the time you're done with your career as an athlete or whatever, you're bitter, right? You're Michael Jordan. It does, it'll work, but you're not going to like the person it's going to turn into you. But small s, you know, spite, what football coaches in America like to call bulletin board material, right? My wife has a fortune cookie that hangs on our refrigerator that says, I get great pleasure in proving other people wrong which she says is the great motivator of my life. So, you know, I think I got into this work kind of for that reason. It's like fixing the broken. I don't like, I don't know how you do that. I think you fix the broken by aiming for peak performance and the broken gets fixed along the way is now that's not the work I do. Again, I go zero to Superman. So I have no expertise on the depressive side. I'm just giving you my opinion on that one, but that's my opinion. Thank you for sharing. Sure. Thanks, Audrey, and thank all of you guys. This was great. Yeah, this was rocking fun, guys. I think we should do it again. Obviously, we don't want to invite Edmarit back, but everybody else can come. (laughs) 
poor Alan Reid. <laughs> yeah, thank you guys a ton. I think the uh, the podcasters podcast was was definitely a good podcast. So excited! Thank you guys. If what you've heard on Flow Research Collective Radio has been helpful, please consider doing us a solid and leaving us a review on Apple, Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you are listening to this. Reviews help us connect to a wider audience so we can get these peak performance principles out to more people. <laughs>